You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Peak Church, located in Apex, North Carolina. Our church is striving to welcome all who are feeling disconnected from God. And so our hope is that over the next several minutes, you will connect with the God that we are talking about, and you'll resonate deeply with the life that this God wants for you. We hope you enjoy. Well, good morning again, uh, everyone, and welcome back for what is going to be the last week of our summer sermon series that we've dubbed, What Would Jesus Say? This is your first time here with us either in person or online. All summer long, we've been in this sermon series where we've been answering your questions, your questions of things you've always wondered about, things, questions you've always had for Jesus, had for God, maybe because uh, there's subjects or topics in your life that the Bible's not so clear about, or maybe there's issues that we face today that Jesus didn't face in the first century. So, like, the question has been all along, what would Jesus say on all of these various things that I'm facing on a daily basis? And so, uh, if this is your first time here, either in person or online, uh, we've covered a whole range of topics. This has been a really, really cool series for us to answer the questions you've submitted on mental health and finding happiness and social media and a lot of the things that we're living with on a daily basis right here, right now. So if, the, if you're missing one of those and those sound interesting, check those out. You can find them on YouTube. You can find them on uh, your wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, but today, uh, those of you who have been here, uh, especially for these last several weeks, uh, I have not been. Um, if you are uh, relatively new to our uh, church, hello, I'm Kyle Meyer. I'm the lead pastor of this church, believe it or not, uh, even though I have not been anywhere around doing any type of work uh, the last several weeks, uh, and that is because uh, this summer, uh, our leadership team here at the Peak uh, gave me the incredible gift of a sabbatical. I've been serving this church uh, last month. I've been serving this church uh, eight years, so this year, this month, I'm starting year nine, year nine, and hallelujah, whoop, whoop, and um, even though the past two have felt like 25 years, uh, and so, <laughs> hence why I needed it, uh, hence why I needed it, and so, uh, the first thing I just want to say right out of the gate is just thank you. Uh, a huge thank you to our leadership team, to our staff who covered uh, while I was gone, and to you all. Uh, I got a lot of texts and a lot of Facebook messages, and I got a couple of cards from folks who were just saying how uh, happy they were to hear this. It wasn't just sort of like a, what are you doing? Come back tomorrow. It was sort of like, uh, thank you for doing this, and we're praying for you. And so, again, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you so, so much for that time and that space. Part of how I spent uh, that time and space over the last uh, five weeks was uh, not only reconnecting with myself and reconnecting with my family, but it was also uh, used to sort of reconnect with Jesus and uh, the calling that Jesus has placed upon my life as pastor of this church. One of the things that I asked Jesus pretty routinely over the course of these last five weeks was this exact question, what would Jesus say? But I put a little spin on it. I asked Jesus just about every single week, what would you say, I'm about to go back into this work, you know, several weeks uh, from now, Uh, I said that at the beginning of the sabbatical, what would you say to us, the pastors, uh, your pastors here in 2022? What would you say to your church, your people, your congregation, your children here in 2022? What would you say now that the landscape has changed, so much in the things of our world has changed, so many of our personal lives have changed in these last several years? So Jesus, what would you say to us about the dreams and the desires and the goals you have for us as your body of believers. And so, in response to that question, one of the biblical stories, one of the passages that it felt like no matter where I could go, I could not get away from hearing the story. It was showing up in my private devotional life, 
people were like sending it to me, just saying like, I don't know, God said to like share this with you. And I was just like, okay, like the same story showing up over and over and over again. And surprise, surprise, it was the story you just heard read a couple of moments ago. And for reasons that are gonna become incredibly clear in just a couple of moments, I think this particular story is one that is meant to speak to us and teach us right now uh, what Jesus would say to us as Christians here in 2022. So if you're here in person or if you're watching this online and you have your Bibles with you or if your smart devices with you, go ahead and return back to our scripture passage for today because that's where we're going to be camped out. Today we're going to be camped out in Luke chapter 21, specifically starting in verse 5, or we're going to roll through uh, verse 19. And just to give you a little bit of a uh, sort of some backstory, some backdrop as to why this story I feel like has been speaking so much to me and I think is speaking to the church writ large here in 2022. So a little bit of a backstory and a recap of what just happened. So we're getting towards the end of Jesus' life. So in Luke's gospel, we're in chapter 21, so we're getting towards the end of Jesus' life. We're in actually the final week of his life. And so he's in Jerusalem, he's ministering, he's teaching, he's speaking, he's witnessing. And while he's there uh, doing his public ministry, some of the disciples peel off because they see the temple. They see the temple. And it looks like this. So it's marvelous, and it's grandiose, and it's wonderful. And they're just loving it. They're talking to you like, oh, my gosh, just look at it. And the architecture, really some post-exilic vibes going on with some design of the front and such. And so they're just they're in awe of this incredible temple, this incredible, uh, really, building that is at the center of Jerusalem and the center of so much of their life. And while they're marveling, Jesus, in sometimes typical fashion, comes up and, uh, I can't say that word, so he uh, poo-poos on it. Uh, he poo-poos on it. He walks up and he says, hey, what are you guys looking at? And they're like, the temple, isn't it wonderful, isn't it great? And Jesus is like, yeah, about that. There's a time coming really soon when that whole thing is coming down. Not one single stone will be left unturned. Total buzzkill. Total buzzkill. And so, like, what's going on? Why did Jesus feel the need to do that? And why would this have been so devastating for disciples in the first century? To answer that, we got to know a little bit of the context. We've got to know a little bit of the history. So this temple actually uh, is a long time coming. It's a long time coming. So way back in 1450 BC, this is the first time God's people ever created a physical building, a physical facility used solely for the purpose of worship. So this was the tabernacle. This is the tabernacle. So this is what the picture, this is like a, a prototype. Someone in Israel actually a couple of years ago made like a prototype version so you could like get like a visual of it. Think of it like temple on a budget. <laughs> temple on a budget, okay? You got a lot of places to be. You're wandering around the wilderness. You can't stay in one spot. And so you're camping, you're glamping, you're whatever the heck that is. And so they take this all around the wilderness when they're traveling as they're en route to the promised land, and this is the primary place in which they worship. But then eventually, once they land in the promised land, many, many years later, many, many kings later, Solomon is the first king to build a temple. So he builds one in 1000 BC. Uh, David wanted to build it first. Uh, God held that out for his son Solomon, so Solomon uh, builds it in 1000. It sits there for uh, close to 500 years, a little over 400 years, uh, and then it's destroyed. Some of you know this story from the Old Testament, uh, that uh, during uh, sort of a, a time of a lot of rebellion and a lot of disobedience, uh, the Babylonian Empire came down, 
destroy Jerusalem, destroyed their whole town, and they destroyed the temple. It was devastating. Hauled everybody off to live as exiles, as prisoners in some foreign land. And so this is why it was so redemptive. And you read about this in the books Ezra and Nehemiah. In 515, they come back and they rebuild the temple. They rebuild the temple. But that's the last time they've done anything to it until our story for today. And so this building has been in existence for 500 years, and no renovations, no replacing the carpet, like nothing had happened. And so, starting in 20 BC, so 20 years before Jesus shows up, King Herod says, I'm going to do y'all a favor. Like, it needs a glow up. Your building, your temple needs a glow up. It ain't looking too shabby. So he does that. He fixes it up. He donates gold himself. Uh, it's actually, we learn, if you study in context, you study, the, uh, you study the cultural sort of historical pieces of it, that uh, he went be above and beyond the biblical standards of what the size of the temple is supposed to be. Like, he added on to it, added a bunch of, like, big high-rise buildings and different things around it, around the temple sort of thing, really to give it that sort of zhuzh uh, that it needed. And so that brings us, go back to the timeline, that brings us to Jesus foretelling its destruction, 33 AD. Most scholars believe that this is about the time that the renovation was complete. This is about the time that it finally got finished. So for 50, over 50 years, the thing has been a work in progress. It finally gets completed. So this is why, you can understand now, why the disciples are like, this is so amazing, it's so cool, it's finally done, it's beautiful, it's wonderful. Only to learn that a couple, like 30, how many years is that, 37? Someone can check my math later. 37 years later, it's destroyed. By the way, if I'm one of the construction workers on site, like putting the final touches on the building, and I overhear Jesus say that, I'm going to be ticked. Back in 2015, I got into a nasty car accident. I got hit by a drunk driver, and I just bought that car one year earlier, and it got completely totaled. And the police officer walks up to me after it's uh, getting hauled away, and he goes, are you okay? Do you have any questions? I go, yeah, real quick. I just put new brake pads on that. Any chance you guys are just going to pop them off or, and sort of like, can I take those uh, with me? Like, that's, that stinks. Like, I just invested so much into that. Now it's gone. And so you can understand. I guess you can understand is what I'm trying to get you to see. You can understand uh, where the disciples are coming from, why this would have been like such a devastating thing for Jesus to say to them. This, this building that is not just a building. It's not just a building. It signifies what's been the center of not just their religious life, their cultural life, their financial life. A lot of the marketplaces were established around the temple. They made a living based in and around their identity of who, and they understood their identity in and through this space that had been built. And so, like, Jesus, what's the big deal? Like, why are you sharing this? Like, why are you being such a buzzkill about it? Like, why, why, why is this going on? And here's what we know. Here's what we know. One of the things that we know about this moment in particular in the Gospels is that part of what Jesus is doing with his followers and his disciples, specifically here in this moment, is he's issuing them a warning. He's issuing them a warning. He's issuing them a word of caution that not only they needed to hear, but worshipers for all of eternity desperately needed to hear. He's warning that if we're not careful our worship and our, 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 our sort of our relationship, our faith writ large, if we're not careful, we can confuse style with substance. He's saying this to his early disciples, but it applies just as much to us as it does to them. That one of the 
temptations in spiritual life, in the Christian life, is to confuse the forms of worship, how we go about worshiping, with the very person we worship himself. Put another way, it's super tempting to sometimes give more commitment, more devotion, to be willing to fight and defend our preferences of what spirituality, faith, and religion, and God should look like, rather than God himself. I'll give you some examples. I'll give you some examples. Friends, this is any time. This is any, any, any time. We as human beings, in our marriages, in our parenting, in our jobs, we confuse the method with the mission. The method with the mission. Raise your hand if you're a parent in this room. Okay. Every single parent will understand this analogy. You understand that when it comes to parenting, your larger mission is to nurture your children. It's to care for your children. It's to lead and to guide your children. Now, you have certain methods that aid that mission. And sometimes, let's just be honest, sometimes we're more committed to the method of parenting than the mission of parenting. Especially any of you who've had more than one kid, you found out a method for kid one. You're like, oh my gosh, that worked perfectly for like potty training and for uh, sleep training. This is amazing, this is wonderful. Only to find out that when you use the method for kid two, It's almost like Kid 2 came out and was like, yeah, ain't none of that going to work. <laughs> My wife and I had so many strategies for, like, that worked with our first child uh, when it came to, like, potty training, when it came to sleep training. And we're like, okay, great. Like, when we, we just, like, let them run around naked, and they just sort of gravitated towards the bathroom. Now, with our second child, he sees that as an opportunity to pee all over the living room. <laughs> and in that moment, parents, let's be real, in that moment, you got a decision to make. Are you going to be more committed to the method or the mission? What's more important to you? What your child needs or what strategies were given to you by your parents that you've been using forever that you think are gospel, right? So we can do this in so many different arenas and you better believe we do this in faith. We do this in church. I'll start with us. Churches are super guilty of it. Think of any time you've ever stepped into, how many of you have ever stepped into a church before, a traditional church where it is obvious from moment one, they've been singing the same songs, reading the same prayers, that's the same musty, moldy carpet that's been in that place for 50 years. Now, don't get it twisted, don't get it twisted. I'm not bagging on traditional style of worship. There's nothing wrong with that. What I'm critiquing is traditional strategy of worship. Traditional strategy of worship says, well, back in 1974, we sang that song, Christ our Lord is risen today. And we had like a revival, and everyone came to faith. Let's do that forever. Let's sing the same songs forever. Let's say the same prayers forever. Forever and forever and forever. And maybe the same thing will happen back then. And they're still waiting. They're still waiting. Now, again, so don't get it twisted. Contemporary churches do the same thing. Just because you're in a contemporary church right here doesn't mean that we don't do it either. 
I cannot tell you how many times I had conversations with pastors who lead contemporary churches who in the aftermath of COVID were like, I cannot wait to get rid of virtual digital church. In person, that's the pure form of church. (laughs) The mission requires us to adjust to this new landscape we're living in, this new world we're living in, these new patterns that we're all inhabiting. The methods are based on our personal preferences. Now, you do this too. Mm-hmm. You thought it was just going to be Kyle confessing. Mm-mm. You too. You do this too. We all do. As individuals, we do this too. How many of you, uh, one point or another in your spiritual journey, you discovered like a, a study or a, an app on your phone or a devotional, and the first time you did it, oh my gosh, it was the most transformative experience you ever had. It was like God was speaking to you every second you poured into that sort of devotional or that spiritual practice. It was, it was enlivening and it was inspiring and you never fo- felt closer to God than you had during that time. And then six months later, a year later, you're starting to feel stale, starting to feel dry, kind of like you'd gone, you're, you haven't really engaged in your faith lately. You said, ah, I'm going to go back to that app. I'm going to go back to that spiritual practice. I'm going to go back to that discipline only to find out It just didn't do the same thing it did before. It wasn't as effective as it was before. Most of the time you found yourself sitting there day in and day out. (laughs) Come on, Jesus. (laughs) Show up. Say something like you did last time. Um, I'm listening. It was the method that got more commitment than the person. Or for some of you, it's geographically located. Some of you really, you really have some like sacred places in your spiritual journey, places where God said something or something really beautiful, something transformative happened in your life. Mine is in college. So in college, I went to Indiana Wesleyan University and smack dab in the middle of our school is a prayer chapel. It's a prayer chapel. And that building saved my faith. Saved my faith. Or in the context of this conversation, God saved my faith. You know what I'm trying to say. I went through a really, really dark time uh, my junior year, faced depression, and I experienced doubt for the first time in a really, really profound and powerful way. But every single time I stepped into that tiny little building smack dab in the middle of the campus, Jesus put me back together. When my life was falling apart, there, I was held together. And to sort of test the theory out, so then a couple of years ago, I got a chance to go back for an alumni event. I got to go back for a soccer event, and so one night we didn't have anything going on. I was like, oh, I'm going to go dart over to the prayer chapel real quick. Sat down there for 30 minutes, nothing. (laughs) All right, well, time to go. (laughs) And so I think, friends, uh, what Jesus is trying to do here uh, in this moment with his disciples looking at the temple is he's trying to help us understand that the reason why this happens to you, to me, to us, is because the God that you worship is alive. And what do living things do? They move. They breathe in fresh ways. They come at you one way one day, and they come at you entirely differently the next day. 
And so Jesus, what he's doing here is he's saying, yeah, 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 yeah. You want to be one of my disciples? Yes. Learn how to forgive your enemies? Yes. Learn how to extend grace? Yes. Learn how to be a person of prayer? Yes. And make sure you add to your tool belt. If you want to call yourself a disciple, call yourself a follower of Jesus, you better make sure that amongst all those other things you're cultivating in your spirit and your soul, make sure that adaptability is somewhere in there. Make sure you have a faith that can actually exist apart from a person or a study or a devotional, a church even. Make sure you have a faith that can exist out in the wild when you're exposed to the elements, when you don't feel like praying, you don't feel like talking to that Jesus dude, you don't feel like engaging and being the person that God calls you to be in that particular season. And so over the course of my sabbatical, this is how I want to spend the remainder of our time, I was convicted about the places in my own heart and my own faith and my own leadership as a pastor in this church of the places where I have been refusing to adapt for a very long time. And now I got to for the sake of my own vitality, for the sake of my own faith, but for the sake of the, for the kingdom of God movement that all of us are a part of, I've got to adapt. And so I'm going to share those with you today. I'm going to share with you uh, the three things I felt over the course of these last five weeks, God routinely kept speaking to me and coming back to and coming back to and coming back to. Now, fear not, I brought you something too. Uh, I brought three things for you. So I'm going to wrap out the conclusion. I'm going to give three things to you. Three things that as I was sitting there, I was like, holy cow, it's not enough for me to make these shifts that we as a church are going to have to make some shifts in how we approach God and how we approach faith and how we approach church and how we approach all of it. If we want any shot of God's dreams, God's plans coming true in this community. You want to hear them? The first of which is this. So the first thing uh, that uh, I was convicted about uh, while I was away uh, was one of the shifts, one of the adaptations that I felt like the Holy Spirit was calling me to make was to be more of a mission-focused rather than a me-focused leader. One of the big shifts that I'm making in this next chapter of my ministry is I want to be a mission-focused, not a me-focused pastor, leader. You go back to our story for today. When Herod built that temple and he put all those bells and whistles on it and all the gold, he was not trying to draw attention to God. He's trying to draw attention to himself. He wanted people to pass by and go, oh my gosh, built that, Herod? (laughs) Whoa, nice. And similarly, similarly, I realized over the course of these last several weeks that um, during my first eight years of ministry, I think most of the time on accident, but I'll take responsibility if I haven't, most of the time on accident, I have built things centered, dependent, and or reliant upon me. Now again, I'd be lying to you if I was like, oh, there was never any ego involved. I'm a human being and I've got an ego, and so for sure that comes out from time to time. But most of the time, when I was building things dependent, centered, relying upon me, it was because one of my crippling, most the worst fears that I suffer from is letting people down. I don't want a single person to be like, where's Kyle with all this work to do? What's he doing? Kicking his feet up? Like, come on, where's that boy? And so I said, you know what? Forget that. I will never be guilty of that, and so I'm going to be in the mix all the time. And as a result of that, 
not only is that unhealthy for me personally, but it's unhealthy for this community. I'm stifling the very growth that I hope and desire every single day. I had a mentor say to me one time a couple years ago before I had the ability to hear it. I heard him, but I didn't, I heard him, but I didn't listen to it. He said, um, a church's growth, not just numerically, somewhat spiritually, in, uh, ability to impact and influence a community, a church's growth will always be in direct proportion to the pastor's ability or inability to relinquish control. I was like, oh, that kind of hurt my feelings. I uh, didn't really appreciate that, but um, I just thought we were having a nice lunch. But okay. Um, but he's right. He's right. By the way, this applies not just to pastoral leadership. This applies to every single one of you who lead anything. Kids, your job, your marriage. Oftentimes, the ability something has to thrive is highly predicated upon, did the person in charge give it the actual space to do so? Or not. And so one of the uh, adaptations I'm going to make in this next phase of ministry is I'm going to stop putting my center at everything we do. I'm going to stop being in the middle of all of it. I'm going to put the mission of this church at the middle of everything that we do. Our mission here is to welcome people who are feeling disconnected from God so that we can help them grow in faith and then hopefully some transformation occurs in their life and then we go on to transform the world. And I can't do that alone. And if I'm in the middle, I'm going to hinder our ability to make that happen. So that's the first adaptation I'm going to make. The second one I'm going to make is this. Second uh, shift I'm going to make in this next phase of ministry is I'm committed uh, every single day to being more of a learner uh, instead of someone who feels like they're a master of uh, what it is that we're doing around here. I want to be someone uh, who is a dynamic rather than a static leader. A dynamic rather than a static leader. You go back to our story for today, I think the hidden thing that Jesus is trying to warn us of is if you have a faith that if the people in the first century had a faith that was dependent upon uh, the temple, it was dependent upon that place, those people, that institution, that establishment, the problem with that is that it always is going to be limited. It's always going to be uh, hindered in its ability to grow and thrive as well. And so one of the things that I'm uh, sort of leading in myself is this awareness that I'm always going to be learning how to be a Christian. I'm always going to be learning how to be a pastor for all the rest of my life. All the rest of my life. i got a new response. When people say, oh, when did you learn how to be a pastor? I'm going to be like, nope, still learning. Still trying to figure it out. Still trying to figure out how this whole church thing works. Still trying to figure out how to lead people well. I want to make a shift in how I lead because so often, again, this applies not just to ministry. This applies to all aspects of life. Somewhere, some way down the line, all of us were taught that learning is static. Think about your marriage. Think about parenting. Think about your job. The expectation was, okay, you went to college, you got the degree, you checked the box, now go and do the thing. Parenting, same thing. You're like, okay, well, I kept this child alive, and that seemed to work okay, and so I'm just going to do the same exact things for kid two, and it'll be fine. I've already learned. I learned. Now I'm executing. We have this sort of static understanding of learning in life where it's like I learn and then I execute. I never go back to learning. And the supreme danger of that is that if you're not careful, if you never go back to learning, if you're not a lifelong learner in every arena of your life, and that applies to me as much as to you, what happens is you might find yourself one day creating things for a world that no longer exists. The church I was taught to pastor in 2014 at Duke Divinity School no longer exists. 
the world has changed substantially in the last eight years. And if I do things back now how I did them back then, I'm going to continue to create a version of church that no longer exists. And again, same thing with you. Those of you who have any type of leadership role in your job, if you're a different leader now than when you first started, that's a good thing. You also shouldn't shouldn't be the same spouse as you were back on day one, 10 years into marriage. You should have changed. You should be a different parent, a better parent to your children. But that only comes with a willingness to be dynamic rather than static. The third adaptation that I'm going to live into in this next season of of ministry is this. The third one and final one that I'm going to share from my own life uh, actually comes in verses 8 through 14. So when Jesus is talking about um, all of the trials, all the tribulations, he's talking about all of the hardship that's going to befall his disciples. Some of them are going to die. Some of them are going to be brought before public court. Like you heard all that. I was like, whoo, sweet Jesus. I don't know. Hmm." Um, So he's talking about all of this. Because he's trying to, Jesus understands that there's something that happens when you can sort of speak these things before they happen. It robs them of the power that fear has over your life. When it's shock and you don't know what's happening, it's surprise. Oftentimes, the fear begins to govern so much of your life. And so, just like Jesus is doing here, one of the shifts I want to make in my own leadership is I want to be a possibility-based leader rather than a fear-based leader. I want to be someone who, whenever great change is happening or uh, great issues arise in our community uh, and in the world, I want to be someone who sees the possibilities of what God can do rather than obsessing about, like, what could go wrong? Let's just be honest. For the last two years, most of us in this room have been fear-based leaders or people. How could we not, right? How could we not? But I don't know about you, I make the worst decisions when I'm afraid. I make the worst decisions in every aspect and arena of my life when they are fear-based decisions. I make some of the best ones when I see and I remember and I recognize all that could happen if God is with me. The number one reason why we make fear-based decisions, you want to know why? You want to know why? Like, please, God, for the love, yes. Mm-hmm. Yep, we'll take it. Why we make fear-based decisions most of the time is because we forget. We forget. When we face financial trouble, we forget the last time it worked out and God provided. When we face a sort of crisis in life, we're like, I don't really know where to go, and I don't know what decision to make, and I don't know what direction I ought to go. We forget all the times God has shown up numerous times in the past offering direction, guidance, clarity, counsel. You want to know what the, num- most, like the number one command in the entire Old Testament is? Remember. For the love of God, remember. Remember what I did in Egypt. Remember what I did with the Red Sea. Remember what I did in the wilderness. It's almost like every single time God has a public address in the Old Testament to his people, he starts out with, hey, remember me? Remember who I am? Remember what I've done? Great. Carry that with you into the future. Otherwise, your spiritual life will look like this. You'll just continue to learn the same spiritual lesson 
over and over and over again. And then you'll get angry about it because you'll be like, I just feel so stale. I don't feel like I'm going anywhere. And God's like, I know, because you're not practicing the first thing I gave you. So I can't even give you the second thing because you haven't learned the first one yet. Right? And so, as promised, here are the shifts that I'm going to make and I feel called to make, convicted to make in my own leadership, my own life, my own faith. But again, it's not enough. It's not enough. I can make all these shifts and adaptations tomorrow, and we as a church will not be any closer to the dreams and the future that God has in store for us until all of us, as one unit, as one family, as one force, run after the same thing. And so in this next chapter of our life together in faith, I have three questions I want you to consider. I want you to wrestle with. I want you to take home and really spend some time praying upon, reflecting upon, especially as we move out of the summer and the sort of lull, summer lull or moving back in the fall or re-engaging our life or re-engaging our rhythms or re-engaging being the people who we want to be and doing the things and making, and making uh, priority, the things that are most important to us. I want you to really reflect upon these three questions, the first of which is this. The first question I want you to ask yourself is not what it's been like lately, what it's been like in the past, but this day going forward. Are you going to have a faith that is central to your life or just like an add-on to your life? Catch a difference? If something is central to your life, it's the first thing you think about. It's the first factor you consider when you're making a decision. It's the first input and voice you listen out for when you're trying to figure out where you ought to go and who you ought to be. When faith is extracurricular, that means that you pay attention to all of your voices of fear, insecurity, all the things that could go wrong. You talk to some other friends, you gossip about it for a little minute, and then you go, oh yeah, I should maybe pray about it. And so this is where you figure out where faith is on your priority list. Ask yourself that question. When does faith, when does your relationship with God show up whenever you make a big decision in life? Is it number one, two, 17, 47? Where is it? You want an example you're not going to like? <clears throat> Here's a good example. If you're going in, how do you go about your weekend plans? We'll start with like a really innocent one. When you go about your weekend plans, when does church show up? <clears throat> Y'all's faces are like, mm, I knew he was going to call me out for that mountain trip I went on recently. But seriously, where does it show up? When you think about the weekend, where does church faith even show up on your priority list? Are you like, yeah, well, we got the kids stuff going on. I got to get ahead on work stuff. And then, oh, yeah, the beach, uh, the beach house opened up, so we're going to make sure we run over there. Uh, oh, yeah, and season four of Stranger Things came on Netflix, and I've not caught up yet, and Kyle keeps talking about it. By the way, that dropped while I was away, and I need a support group. I feel like I know a lot to talk about. I got a lot of things to process and a lot of fears that I'm working through. And so uh, see me after service for prayer right over here uh, for Stranger Things. But seriously. It's a silly example. And church, again, method versus mission. Coming to church is not the mission. Let me be super clear about this. Getting you to come to church more often ain't the mission of this church. It's are we providing ways, tools, resources to help you be the church more often than you are right now? If your church attendance dropped but your engagement with God personally and in the world increased, I'll take that every day of the week. 
Second question I want you to consider uh, in this season uh, that we're heading into uh, is not only is uh, where is faith in regards to your priorities, uh, but what does it do? Uh, what does it do? So uh, another question I want you to ask is, is your faith stagnant recently? Or is it what I like to call catalytic? Catalytic. So stagnant, you know what that is. Stagnant is like a pond. A lot of rain just dumps into it, doesn't go anywhere, so it gets mildewy, gross, leeches, disgusting, all of that stuff. Um, Catalytic is something that the moment that that's introduced into its system, it energizes and speeds up the process for transformation. Does your faith, has your faith been doing anything in you and in the world? Right? This is the progress chart. This is the way it's supposed to look. James chapter 2, super clear. Faith without works is, oof, dead. Gosh, can you just asleep maybe, James? Like, can we just like tear it down a little bit? Like, maybe it's just like taking a nap? Nope, dead, he says. It's because this is the way it's supposed to work. When God speaks to you here at this church, when you're listening to a podcast, if you're watching this online while you're driving to the beach, (laughs) um, here's what's supposed to happen. You're supposed to hear it. It's supposed to change you. And then you are supposed to affect change in the world. Who you waiting on, baby? Who you waiting on? It's you. It's you. You're waiting on you. And if it stops at any one of these before the blue one, it's incomplete. And again, again, you will find yourself frustrated in faith because you'll be like, I feel like I'm learning all this stuff, but I just like, I don't know. It's not doing anything. And like, maybe because it flowed into you, and you never let it flow out. Or maybe it flowed into you, but then you like left it on the church seat as you left and went back into your life. Or you left it at your coffee table, wherever the heck you do your quiet time. You left it in your car, went back to your job. My third and final question for you to consider is this. Is my faith central or an add-on? Is it stagnant or catalytic? The last question that I'm going to beg you, beg you, beg you to consider in this next season, especially given the season that we're coming out of in our country, in our world, you have it, is, is my faith from this day forward, is it going to be more resilient? Or is it going to continue to be reactionary? You go back to our story for today, why Jesus, again, why he goes through and he lists all the different things that are awaiting his disciples is because he's trying to prepare them to not have a reactionary, impulsive, fear-based response when they start having trials and struggles come their way. He's almost teaching us as disciples, don't be surprised when life gets hard. Don't be shocked anymore. Don't overreact to that. It comes with the territory of following me. And good gracious, hallelujah, I swear, it feels like nowadays we're living in the most reactionary time in human history. Everybody just crazy overreacts and course corrects based off of somebody did something you don't like. Somebody said something you don't agree with. Or something inconvenienced your existence in the slightest possible way. We're doing this in our marriages, we're doing this in our jobs, we're doing this in our parenting, and oh yeah, we are doing this with church. During COVID, we lost uh, a good number of families who had been committed to this place for a really, really long time. And I ran into a couple of them 
probably they hated the awkwardness of that, but um, uh, getting Chipotle and different things like that, and we'd start getting into conversation, and then they would just sort of say, like, yeah, I don't really know why I stopped doing church. I just sort of, like, you know, the, the stuff of the world happened, and I don't know, just, yeah, I don't know. To me, that's a reactive type existence instead of a resilient one, one that, as Jesus says, stands firm in the midst of struggle. I'm not saying that there's not times to bail on stuff, because there is. Sometimes you need to bail from a relationship, from an organization, from a group, what have you. But before you do so, I'm going to leave you with this. Before you do so, I want you to make sure, if you want to develop a more resilient side of existence in the world, anytime you feel like, oh my gosh, I want to bail, I want to tuck tail and run, at first, ask yourself these two questions. Number one, is it possible, is it possible, is it possible that I'm expecting the world to know and meet all of my personal preferences? Number two, even if this is not my personal preference, are we still chasing the same goal? And if we are, God may just in fact be giving you an opportunity to stand firm and stand in so that the thing that you're struggling with can become just a little bit more meaningful than it had up until this point when you just left every time it got hard. Friends, if we don't learn how to develop some sort, some form of resilient faith, to use Jesus' words, we're going to lose. We're going to lose out on all the things that God wants and God has in store for us. Because every day you'll just be conceding control over your life over to what was the loudest voice that day or the strongest emotion that day. And so... If you, like me, want to run after this good future that I believe God has laid out in front of us, let us stand firm together. Thank you for listening to The Peak Podcast. Make sure you subscribe wherever podcasts can be found. For more information on how to get connected with our church, please visit us at thepeakchurch.org.